0: Hello friends and listeners, welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Uh, Today's episode, we are going down the literary gun barrel once more, and we've made our way to the second John Gardner story for special services, published in 18... no, try that again, 1982. Yeah, 1982. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by my reader-in-arms, the stamper to my Elliot Carver, the lighter to my Bond joshua taylor
1: while i don't have a, an advanced prothesis like uh, felix leiter has <laughs> i will accept <laughs> I, I, I will accept that charge i will accept that that's very fitting i, I appreciate that Thank wear you. it wear uh, it proudly wear it with proudly. honor indeed so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you of course our, our listeners can't see but uh we're doing our we're, we're recording this podcast of course on on video so i'm holding up my copy of for special services mm-hmm. by John Gardner. And, and I'm
0: holding up my copy.
1: And we actually have the exact same copies, which is a rarity I usually find on this yeah, show. Yeah, we usually think, have yeah. some different edition, me living in Canada, you living in the UK, there's always different covers mm-hmm. when it comes to movies and books, right? But we got the exact same one. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, because I sent this to you. Yeah, it ha- exactly, That's there you go, that's the connection. <laughs> but, um, not really a but, but in the regard to the cover itself, there's a really cheesy looking python head on the front of ah, it there
0: is there yeah. sure is hold that up again hold that hold yeah. up again. <laughs> he looks kind of like he's smiling doesn't he
1: i literally expect to see like i don't know like uh james earl jones like head like between those teeth there in, in the great jaws you know like in yeah, um, conan the barbarian conan, yeah tulsa doom yeah or i don't know cobra commander or something like that uh gi joe references which uh, yeah, sometimes nice some of the fun. action nice seems GI Joe esque in some circumstances in terms of uh, <laughs> plausibility. It does, it does a little bit plausibility. We'll <laughs> we'll get
0: there, buddy. But yeah, thanks everybody for joining us on this. Uh, if you haven't read for special services, go ahead and uh, and pick it up, um, and then come back and and check out our episode. We've we've done a lot of these book reviews, and I'm so delighted that we've decided to do the continuation novels as well. It's going to see us into the future for a while, and we're just going to take our time. No yes. rush. Every You know, every season we'll have three, maybe three or four book episodes. It'll be fun. Yeah. But uh,
1: for those uh, who are new, uh, the last book that we covered in regard to the Bond series was the first of John Gardner's novels, which was License Renewed. So. We had Bond uh, foiling the plans of a nuclear Would be thi- Scottish a, layered. A would-be Scottish layered slash astrophysicist who wanted to cause all nuclear reactors across the world to, uh, what's the term, meltdown, or he had the ability to mm-hmm. do so. Uh, yeah, it was a fun, entertaining read. It's missing the Fleming spirit, in my opinion. So let's see, you know, whether or not for special services, uh, does it continue the John Gardner trend of being kind of... Airport, Reed Fleming, or mm-hmm. or does it do something different to uh, tickle our imagination to get our appetites waiting for more of his works in the Bond franchise?
0: Well, when last we did this, we had um, a good bio on John Gardner. So if that's what you're looking for, folks, head back to the to, to check out the beginning of our license renewed episode where Josh went through those stats and uh, today. We're just going to move swiftly into our angle.
1: And just for clarification, um, For Special Services is the second of the John Gardner Bond novels, and it was published in 1982, September of that year, under the Jonathan Cape label. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Kingsley Amos didn't like this one. I remember, Josh.
1: Yeah. His Times Literary Supplement Review called it uh, an <laughs> unrelieved disaster. Uh, Eek. He mm-hmm. said Gardner is not the most as- self-assured of writers and that the plot was blundering, absurd. What makes Gardner's book so hard to read, uh, K- Amis said. Now, Kingsley Amis, just for those, again, who are new to our series, Kingsley Amis wrote the first official non-Fleming James Bond novel way back in the late 60s called Colonel's Son, a book that uh-huh. we that we kind of enjoyed. I would say we probably enjoyed yeah, more yeah, so than the John Gardner so era. But even so, so Amos so is definitely, and he also yeah. wrote the James Bond encyclopedia, if I'm not mistaken, or the James Bond dossier, I think it's called.
0: James Bond dossier, yeah. Yeah, the
1: yeah. James Bond dossier, which is a famous like book about Fleming's work and whatnot. So, you know, he is definitely an expert in terms of writing James Bond and uh, loyalty to the character and the franchise. So basically what Amos says about John Gardner's work is that It makes it so hard to read is not so much its endlessly silly story as its desolateness, its lack of the slightest human interest or warmth.
0: Mm. Yeah, not not, not a glowing review. Uh, I know as well, I saw, I think it was on Wikipedia, but you can maybe correct me on that because I wasn't doing too much look at this, but one of the critics referred to Gardner as an arranger of other men's flowers. And I, I won't show my hand yet, as to whether or not I agree with that, but it is, it's is—it's an interesting description of the effect of this book. I won't say whether it's an appropriate one, but I can see where the analogy comes from. Um, oh, actually, I did write that down. Reginald Hill, he's the guy who said that, a critic. But hey, uh, yeah, this book wasn't as well regarded, I don't think, but there are some features in here that might trump features of the previous book. There's a lot to talk about, and we've set some time aside to do that, so yes. let's head into my... Summary of the story, and we'll get you back after about 20 minutes on the other side where we'll do our feature review. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's James Bond in a plane saving the day from evildoers as an anti-hijack guard. BA Flight 12 from Singapore is the third recent long-haul flight that Bond has been on in response to a spate of hijackings. And if the dying gurgles from his most recent baddie can be trusted, Spectre might be back in action. Spectre, I hear you say? Didn't that organization die, along with Ernst Stavro Blofeld in Japan, and the plot of You Only Live Twice? Well, yeah, sort of. Cut to a bayou in remote Louisiana. Six miles from the nearest town sits a dilapidated spook mansion. The locals are afraid of it, and only a deaf mute named Crichton frequents the place. Most of the time he keeps to himself, but travels to the store when a gathering occurs. These gatherings are infrequent and untroublesome affairs, well attended by mysterious out-of-towners and requiring a great amount of special catering that Crichton takes care of. Days in advance he makes his way to the shop and stocks up. Planes and boats register in the nearby skies and waterways, but never leave a trace. Thanks to Gardner's intrusive pen, we get a peek behind the shutters and see that there's little truth to local superstition. The house is far from haunted. Instead, The decrepit exterior hides a palace inside. Spooks are certainly present, but they're all the living type and invited guests. Spectre still breathes, and using the home's reputation as a rendezvous and meeting center. What we learn from this opening vignette is limited, but important. These pages help plant the seed of doubt and encourage us to question all characters and motivations in the first half of Gardner's novel. Blofeld, or some new incarnation of the Spectre Leader with the same name, talks ambiguous about Operation Hound and reveals that a trap has been set to lure and include James Bond, that old stinking chestnut. Revenge might be a dish best served cold, but in the bayou, under Blofeld's supervision, it appears to be a dish served up to, and crushed by, a giant python, one big enough to swallow humans whole. The scene is creepy in its foreshadowing, to be sure, but devoted readers know that Bond has proven himself already as a victor in cryptozoology combat, having made tidy work of Dr. Knoll's giant kraken. By comparison, this reptilian threat lacks a little venom, and we can imagine Bond making tidy work of one of these pythons. Still, it's the 1980s, and snakes are very much in vogue. We'll go with it. Blofeld's back, and he wants revenge. While slowly piecing things together back in London, the spate of hijackings, their links to a German underworld figure, Kurt Treiben, the recent emergence of American millionaire ice cream magnate Marcus Bismacher, M calls Bond into the office. Leaving the romantic warmth of colleague lover Anne Riley, better known as Cute from License Renewed, Bond speeds to work in the Silver Beast, his modified Saab 900 Turbo, after the customary repartee with Money Penny, Bond enters M's office and meets Cedar Leiter, daughter of CIA agent and close friend Felix. Cedar has been working in the State Department since she turned 18, but has recently been brought into the CIA on an incognito basis. Probably because of her father, but he wasn't to know. Anyway, Cedar received her official call-up a week ago, and finds herself in M's office about to work with her father's old friend. The serendipity is more than a little forced here, but Bond fans have good will, and so we suspend our disbelief in the hopes of a good adventure. M briefs Bond on Bismarck, founder of an ice cream empire. His passions include fine art, targeted in the form of rare prints, fast cars, faux cowboy luxuries, and a no-hold barred approach to privacy. Bismarck has built for himself a private ranch complex outside of Amarillo, Texas, Complete with conference center, monorail, airstrip, mansion, and racetrack. Nabon fails to see the service's interest in this wealthy American until he is told of Bismarck's suspected connection in the disappearance of multiple federal agents. The most recent victim, a girl from the CIA, was found dead in the marshland outside of Baton Rouge. In her possession was a photostat copy of a letter with Blofeld's signature. Bond is also lured by the potential of meeting Bismacher's beautiful wife, Nina. M. is determined to uncover the link between this rich Texan and any chance of an emerging or updated Spectre organization. So, Bond and Cedar are to work together, in America, to infiltrate Bismacher and expose what they can. Their gambit will be to pose as Professor and Mrs. Joseph Penrunner, art collectors in possession of a series of rare Hogarth prints. These prints, forgeries of course, were created by the best, and M will tip off the media before Bond and Cedar head to New York City. Bond agrees to all terms, but insists that his Saab is sent over to America in advance. It takes M a while to warm to the idea, but he eventually does, and it's not long before Bond and Cedar are preparing for the trip in a Kensington safe house. Then, in disguise, they arrive in New York and wait for the dangling bait to start attracting nibbles from Bismacher's people. Well, it doesn't take long, which is a good thing, because Gardner's Bond has no interest in sharing his feelings about America, nor does the author seem keen on bringing the environment much to life. It's action he's after. The travelogue is not really happening yet. On their return to Lowe's Drake Hotel, from a three-course dinner featuring plump asparagus, poached sole, and a pear tart, Plump, by the way, is about as foodie as Gardner's writing wants to get. Bond and Cedar are intercepted by four of Bismacher's men. Spectre Hoods, for hire, led by New York City tough guy Mike Mazard. Their intention is to force Penrunner's hand at selling the prints by threatening the professor into meeting Bismacher immediately. The posse is rounded out by Joe Bellini, a dude named Louis, and some kid named... well, kid... Held soft hostage in their own room, Bond and Cedar eventually get control of the situation and decide to flee, careful not to rough up the hoods too badly on account of needing them to report back to their boss. But Bond won't have the meeting with Bismacher made on any terms but those that he establishes for himself. Ignoring the private jet sent expressly for the purpose, Bond decides to lay low near D.C. for a couple of days before driving straight through to Amarillo where they will call upon Rancho Bismarck. During their stay at a huge, faceless motel, Bond and Cedar modify their disguises and swap shifts on watch in the lobby and bar, all the while testing out the waters of the should we, could we, no, you're my pal's daughter awkwardness, which is predictably crystallizing between them, But little do they know that the long arm of Spectre reaches to corrupt bellboys and other hotel staff across the country. A call is made by one of these staff to New York City, and before long, Mazard and Bellini are back on the trail. They catch up with Bond and Cedar on the hour of their departure, and rig an elevator to plummet. They didn't account for the lift's last-ditch safety features, however, and coupled with Bond's handiwork with a concealed grappling hook thank you, Q-Branch, the two agents escape peril, leaving Mazard with egg on his face again. Now Bond puts in a call to Rancho Bismarcker about this time, using the number given to him by Mazard before he revealed himself a sadistic killer. After some preamble with a rickety, spectral voice representing Bismarcker, Bond drops cover and introduces himself as himself, a move which gets him talking to the head honcho immediately. Correctly assuming that Spectre would know it was him anyway, using his name saves everyone a lot of hassle. And just like that, Bond and Cedar are booked on the 10am monorail with a promise of a personal escort in the form of Walter Luxor, Bismacher's partner. Luxor, when they arrive, is found to be a skeletal man and described by Gardner in sinister obliqueness as, quote, "...the walking dead, a skull over which thin, almost transparent skin had been tightly stretched, In fact, Luxor's voice and appearance is such that Bond wonders, even in this first meeting, if he may not be the new Blofeld. In any event, the train ride offers the visitors a good scope of the ranch and its expansive lands, then the mansion house itself, an exact replica of Tara from Gone with the Wind. Luxor proudly explains that Bismarck bought the rights to the architectural design from MGM, Bismarcker a great bear of a man, the book tells us, is waiting for them all with his gregarious charm and Texas hospitality. He can't do enough to get them settled, and there seems to be an air of genuine excitement at their arrival. Bond isn't fooled, but he does accept a drink from his host. Not a mint julep that he was offered, but a martini, of course. What else? Some chat commences on the veranda about life, art, and business, heady philosophical stuff from a morally homeless capitalist. Then Nina Bismacher appears on the scene, young wife to the ice cream magnet, and transitions things towards the sexual. Described as Black Fire, which blazed with knowledge beyond her obvious youth, Bond is taken by her, but plays it cool. Cedar spots the tension, of course, and doesn't much like it, but stays quiet and only jests with Bond when they settle into their cabins later. A guided tour is arranged, and Bond goes off with Nina, at her insistence, which strikes us as sort of odd, seeing as her husband offers no objection to this quasi-sexual advance to a stranger. Cedar, meanwhile, will be entertained by Bismacher himself. On the tour, Nina acts the worried wife and deliberately reveals clues and concerns to Bond about her husband's suspicious work. A business gathering is in the works for just a couple of days away, attended by a retinue of international folk, and Nina is fearful about her husband's behavior near and within the conference center. She shows Bond how to gain access to this building by a subterranean tunnel, itself revealed by a secret entrance in the stones. To repay her for these confessions, Bond makes out with her in his sab, and Nina lays enough horny groundwork for Bond to believe in her ambiguous appeals. Gardner revels in these details, by the way, a bit like a frustrated teen, Lots of hands, tongues, and lips are described as Bond and Nina play a fiery game of tonsil hockey. Anyway, after dinner, Bond and Bismarck talk shop about the prince and eventually agree to a wager. If Bond wins a car race against the wafer-thin Walter Luxor the next morning, Bismarck will give him one million dollars for the prince and another million for himself. If he loses, however, Bismarck gets the prince for nothing. Well, this makes almost zero sense from an art collection point of view, but Bond knows that they're fakes anyway, and his cover doesn't really seem to matter anymore, especially not when the reputation of this silver beast has been threatened. Plus, isn't it time we reach a new set piece? Why, yes it is, but not before a closing scene to the day where Bond and Cedar steal a Bismacher pickup truck, reconnoitre the ranch under darkness, and take a look at the secret entrance to the conference center. Through one of the laboratory windows, they observe Bismacher and Luxor with some employees, two drugged men whose calm and obedience is part of a master plan to control people. And the delivery method is ice cream. Mmm, watch this space. Returning to their cottages, Cedar discovers hundreds of harvester ants crawling around, hungry for food. Bond knows that he was the intended victim. Instead of raising the issue with housekeeping, Bond does what anyone would do while visiting a cottage, infested with ants. He decides to fix a homemade bomb and blow the place to a smoldering husk. Blaming the explosion on a reckless gas canister, set alight while fixing himself a cigarette, Bond placates Bismacher when he arrives, momentarily concerned. Well, bygones be bygones and all that. Who knew harvester ants had such a hive mind and a penchant for English blood? Yada yada. The race is still on tomorrow, they say. We'll see each other in the morning. And just before you can say, yee the sun rises over Amarillo, and the racetrack wakes up to a blanket of hot air, the days promising to be a scorcher. Up against Bond's Saab 900 Turbo is a 1969 Shelby Mustang GT350. Now Bond can see that it's been modified, and Luxor is hiding that point, but hey, so too has his Saab been souped up. It takes one to know one. The 10-lap race starts as one might expect, with Luxor taking the lead but then getting wild and hairy when the Shelby drops some incendiary treats for Bond. Luckily, the Saab has been outfitted with a fire protection system that kicks immediately into action as soon as the flames below its chassis are detected. Thank goodness for 10 kilograms of Halon 1211, huh? Well, Bond uses the cheap shot as motivation to take control of the race, not that he wouldn't have anyway, and he pulls clear of Luxor with some sharp driving down the stretch and wins the race. For the second time, in about 12 hours, Bismacher plays dumb about an outrageous attempt on Bond's life that goes awry, and, also for a second time, Bond blames a cigarette, this time explaining the accident away as a feature of Luxor's carelessness behind the wheel. However you cut it up, Bond is due $2 million, and his amiable host agrees to settle things that night. With the mysterious conference scheduled for the next day, Bond and Cedar agree to leave in the morning, Mike Mazard, recently arrived from New York, watches on with sinister eyes from the stands. Later that night, Nina arrives and warns Bond further about Bismacher's conference, all but confirming suspicions, in his mind at least, that Bismacher equals Blofeld. He reassures her that he'll see to her safety, and before making love, Nina reveals what she feels is a deformity, a single female breast, An oddity to be sure, but nothing revolting, as she claims her husband finds it to be. Bond, of course, would get aroused at a kiwi, so long as it looked ripe, so Nina's unique physique actually entices Bond further towards ecstasy. Gaining access to the conference center very early the next morning through the tunnel, Bond hides under the stage and awaits Bismacher's delegates and the keynote address. There, he expects to fill in all the remaining gaps, It takes some time, but Bond does take a nap in the crawlspace and wakes up to the sound of spectre operatives finally filtering into the auditorium. Walter Luxor welcomes everybody and spins a yarn about world politics, ballistic missiles, space satellites, and a particle beam weapon. As the ambitious details of Operation Heavenly Wolf, or Hound for short, are shared with the audience, Bond starts putting together all the threads. Hmm, by gaining control of NORAD headquarters in Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, Spectre will have control of America's military space network. Such a coup will ostensibly put them in an unrivaled position of intelligence and might over the other nations. But how will they gain control and infiltrate such a heavily guarded complex? Ice cream, of course. Bismarck's favorite flavor, mind control. A catering contract was never worth so much, huh? Well, so long as they all eat some in the mess hall, NORAD officers will be duped into obedience, and the je ne sais quoi, as Bond soon finds out, is to use him as a top stooge. As he and Cedar try to escape with the monorail to share the fearful knowledge, he is caught and taken prisoner. Two days later, he awakes, convinced that he is General James A. Banker, following some thorough, drug-fueled brainwashing by Luxor and company. Banker bemoans the previous night's drinking, thinking that he's got a hangover, but insists that they get the inspection of NORAD completed all the same. Mike Mazard, one of the General's Majors, and Captain Luxor assist Banker to Cheyenne Mountain, where a series of inspections and demonstrations are held for the senior officer and his team. It strikes Banker that the behavior of some of these military personnel leans towards the lackadaisical, but he's too jumbled up on Specter juice. To pursue the thoughts. Or is he? Well, fortunately for the free world, Bond's senses had returned to him during the trip to NORAD, and he'd been playing along, waiting just for the right moment. A gunfight bursts into life inside the compound, eventually leading to the end of Operation Heavenly Wolf. Nina, who Bond credits as sneaking in and giving him an antidote for the stupor at some point the previous night, arrives by helicopter, willing and ready to pursue Luxor and Bismarck to the bitter end. She says she knows where they're heading, and makes for the reptilian swamplands of Louisiana. Never mind the fact that it's 860 miles between these two locales, and no narrative mention of a fuel stop. The chopper makes it there by the evening, just ahead of the villains. Nina is conveniently on good terms with Crichton, the deaf-mute, and she and Bond access the haunted, so-called haunted, mansion without any trouble at all. They have sex a few times and fall asleep. As he dozes in his guest room, waiting for that seminal moment of confrontation, Bond is woken by a shot downstairs, and he descends quietly to find the horrible truth that has evaded him the whole time. Blofeld is Nina. Yep, there she is, the daughter of Ernst Stavro Blofeld, stark naked and standing over her husband, Marcus Bismacher, who's bleeding profusely from three Colt 45 wounds to the knees and arm. As it turns out, Bismacher's sexual ambivalence was his Achilles' heel. Though he was following his wife's instructions, he just couldn't resist the magic allure of Agent 007. He softened for Bond and fed him the antidote and now he was paying the final price for betraying Spectre's ultimate plan. A quick fight breaks out, but it doesn't last long. Bond throws a chair at Blofeld, and the window behind her breaks. She falls through and down into the bayou, where the two pythons lay in wait. And, as if that wasn't serendipitous enough, Felix Leiter jumps into the scene, in not dissimilar fashion to how he just appeared out of the ether with a rocket launcher in Goldfinger, one of Fleming's more exciting adventures, Come to think of it, and puts bullets in the brains of both snakes and would be herpetologist Blofeld. So, crisis averted and specter killed, again. But Gardner's not quite finished yet. The book has a few more cringes to supply. On their hotel balcony, planning a platonic holiday together, Cedar appeals to Bond for something more than friendship. But Bond knows it's not right to sleep with your friend's daughter right? Well, yeah, but that same old friend has left his buddy a package. Bond opens the gift, first, which comes from the President of the United States, an engraved, silver-plated, police thirty-eight .38-caliber revolver. Wow, touching stuff, and very biographic of something that Fleming himself received. He then goes on to open the envelope and reads Felix Leiter's cards, and unbelievably, gobsmackingly, Here's what it says. To James Bond, the gift of a daughter, or whatever you want her to be. Whatever you want her to be. Hang on. Felix Leiter is pimping out his daughter to his old buddy now? Is that really how Gardner closes this book with a regressive gesture towards women's rights? My goodness, it certainly seems that way. Oh, I get it. Boys will be boys, and sometimes even a lad's joke can raise a chuckle. But his own daughter, for real, there's just no getting away from the fact. Regardless of what you thought of the story, Four Special Services has one of, if not the worst, final pages of any James Bond story. It is a cringeworthy moment that misses all but the most misogynistic of targets, vaporizing in a single line any suggestion of teamwork or female agency that might have taken a breath throughout this novel. Gardner really screwed the pooch with that closing effort. Whatever you want her to be. I'll tell you what I'd like Cedar to be. I'd like her to be heading to the nearest pet store and buying a giant python to put in her father's toilet. That'd be alright for a start.
1: Well, that was very thorough and genius as always, Scott.
0: <laughs> Euphemisms. I like them. <laughs> uh, hopefully that summary reminded you of things you had forgotten if you haven't read the book in a while or indeed uh, patch things up. Um, I know that you might not share my opinion of the ending necessarily, but we're going to thrash that out here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And let's yeah. get into it. Josh, how do we score our angle? This reminder for those friends of Bond by Numbers who maybe haven't read a book or listened to one of our book shows before. Our Angles.
1: So, Angle, that's the acronym. A is for sure is. allies and adversaries. This is sort of where we take to task uh, the supporting allies of James Bond, as well as the hench- the villains and henchmen of the story. And that's under one complete grade out of five. Then we have Narrative, the style of the writing, the strength of the narrative, the entertainment value of the narrative uh, as a whole. Uh, we rate that out of five as well. And then we have G for girls. So that is, of course, you know, the Bond girl of the story or Bond women mm-hmm. in, in this respect. We like that, but it, yeah. it
0: doesn't work so well with the acronym.
1: No, it does not. So we had to work it in because "ang Wool is something that Elmer Fudd would say. <laughs>
0: Anvil, yeah, that's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Angle, yeah. Then we have L for locations. So the environs, the locales that we visit in the Bond novel, we rate them out of five as well. And then, of course, crucial to any James Bond story, E is for equipment, the gadgets, the weapons. It is. Mm -hmm. Held by both the good guys and the bad guys in our story. We rate that Mm -hmm. out of five.
0: And that gives us a total score of out of 25 that we share and we use as an index for scoring these tales. And we've been doing that ever since we started going through those Fleming books a long time ago. Let's begin, my friend, with allies and adversaries. A, hey, we've got, boy, oh boy, we got some interesting figures in this story, pal.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the allies first. Um, okay, right. So just to name them off, we have Cedar Leiter, the daughter of Felix Leiter, mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. novice CIA agent. Um, I'll see. Definitely no Holly Goodhead, that's for sure. Then we have Nina Bismacher, so to speak, um, because she is sort of like the damsel in distress of Bismacher. Mm -hmm. That's like Mm his kept wife, uh, apparently abused wife as well. Then we have Mm -hmm. good old Felix making a a nostalgic appearance in the end. Good to see Felix again in in some capacity anyway. He gets a badass Mm -hmm. moment, Mm -hmm. at at least. Uh, Then we have Anne Riley or Cute, ugh, well, we have her.
0: She she is, she's but a, you know, a footnote in a scene. I know.
1: Like, uh, this, 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 bond skater her
0: bed, yeah. yeah.
1: I'll get that. Because she's been a bit of
0: agency. We like her. We do like her a bit.
1: I do. I like her, but I have some issues with her portrayal. But nonetheless, we also have cool. M. We have M, you know, that's
0: yep. we've got M. Ra- that's M.
1: Yeah. granted. And then we got some U.S., you know, some U.S. Army c- corps at, uh, and officers at uh, Cheyenne Mountain as well. Uh, mm-hmm. They do a good job of, of the foiling Specter, the reborn Specter's evil plans. So, yay to them. So, those are our, our are essentially our allies as a whole for the bond, uh, for this bond adventure. Villain wise, well, we advocates.
0: We c- we could. I mean, just to play devil's advocate. Sorry, but we could say that Bismarck is a bit of an ally at a key moment in the story as well. Seeing as he's the one who, you know, gets in there and gives Bond the antidote at the end.
1: True. Well, that's why if I put her in the ally. I put Nina Bismacher in the ally category because not of not Nina Marcus. Oh, Marcus. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Ni- you could put- Nina. Yeah. Nina doesn't give the pills. Nina. Yeah. Mar- Marcus is the trapped creature of Miss Blofeld. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. The what a reveal. All right,
0: and then the yeah, then the adversaries. Yeah. So we've got Nina.
1: Nina. Then we have um, Walter Luxor. Obviously, um, Nina. Now mm-hmm. Nina Blofeld. We have Mike Mazard, and Bismacher himself mm-hmm. is sort of a villain in his mm-hmm. own way. And he is,
0: he is, yes. Yeah. Of Joe,
1: is. And we have Joe Bellini, uh, the kid, and uh, the two guards, I suppose, at the monorail station, the guy in the truck. One of whom
0: gets electrocuted, yeah. And the yeah. guy, the, the porter at the at the motel that calls Spectre, like all the hoods, yeah. they're all in all, there.
1: All the hoods, yeah. Kind of a Diamonds Are Forever vibe from them, despite being Spectre. Very games. much. The novel Very Diamonds much. Are and Forever, it's not- I should indicate. Yes.
0: And it's not just because we're in America, Josh, like we can talk about this when we get to the locales. But I mean, the locomotive, the hoodlums, the desert setting, like there's a lot of diamonds jive going on in here.
1: Absolutely. That's a rundown of our allies and adversaries. So let's talk about them. Let's uh, go through them. Now, do you want to save Cedar for the girl category and we'll just leave her for now and do the other allies besides her?
0: Well, I mean, we can look at her in two capacities. We can look at her True. as an ally. Um, I didn't think she did a heck of a lot, to be honest. As an ally, she seemed more like a uh, a, ha- a helpless figure that I couldn't understand, Like almost like she was like a student intern or something. I, I-, I found it really difficult yeah. to understand her place, why the CIA, first of all, would have wanted her there, and why M, in all of his experience, would have thought, yeah, this is the one who I want to pair, bond up with, yeah. This inexperienced hot chick who is, like, related to his pal. I, I just didn't get why. I just thought it was unnecessary and distracting. I, d- I don't mean that, like, her personality or, like, putting her down as a female figure. But the whole inclusion of her in the story. Like, yeah. why? Is it just fan service on Godner's part? Like, why would That's the CIA want her? Why would the CIA want her? It just doesn't make any sense to me. She's an unproven 18-year-old who gets this called feels- up to, and then... This is fucked up to me. Yeah. I don't get it. Th- I don't This get
1: feels it. a lot to me. And I know, like, this feel, feels a lot to me, like Alicia Cuthbert, like uh, Kim Bauer on 24, okay. you know, to like okay. Peter Zippel yeah. Jack Bauer. Because doesn't she end up working for the CCTU at some point? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that place Probably. only has terrible security because of how many moles <laughs> it had, but also just because of their hiring practices yeah. as well, right? But anyway, yeah. no, but enough possible. about... Nepotism Plus, man, absolutely. That was CTU. You got your card. Um,
0: swipe your swipe your card.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can't have Tony Almeida's all the time, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but no. she's functional. She's not hysterical, thank goodness. I did like that about her, but that just seemed just really... Gardner was really trying hard not for you not to like her. The thing is, though, did John... Because yeah. this is 82. So John Gardner must have seen, for your eyes only... I'm wondering if you thought what if BB doll yeah. what if BB yeah. doll play, played by Lynn Holly Johnson what if she was an agent instead and then I still put that uncomfortable dynamic between uh you exactly. know Bond exactly and, and, and I, a younger woman like that yeah absolutely and someone right. who's also the daughter I'm, of his, I thought that his, more than a couple friend. of times yeah absolutely there's it's, even it's ice just cream all messed up <laughs> Yes like exactly you're right like Like why he does buy her an ice cream, but
0: he has it instead. But listen, like you know, (laughs) why couldn't Felix have just been there? Why couldn't it be a Felix lighter story? Why does it? Why do you even have to involve it? Is it some? Is it some pathetic attempt to get a a female character in there? Because if it is, then it's so token that it doesn't deserve the respect. Like you could do so much more with a female ally. Fleming did so much more with female allies. You know, in some of his capacities. And I feel like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't really like this character. I just found her dumb. (laughs) Found her inclusion (laughs) really stupid. Yeah. I just did. And it complicates the story. At the end, it makes the end superfluous. That's just me, though. Like, I thought it was a pretty decent category for the story, to be honest. The Allies and Adversaries. Like, it probably would have been a four if it weren't for Cedar Lighter, I went three and a half overall because yeah, you know, I like Bismarcker. I, I, I thought his character would even be more interesting in a contemporary story because although he writes the females quite poorly, at least up to this stage, uh, with the exception of cute Anne Riley, I like her. I think that I think that Gardner actually treats Bismarck's sexual ambivalence respectfully, and I think uh, it could have been maybe. even more. It could have been even more operative. And interesting in a contemporary story, if a character like that shows up, you know, like,
1: yeah, I'd like to see, but like, he, mm-hmm. he does and it's interesting too, because you say, you know, like the homosexual aspect of Bismarck and the fact that he's described as a bear of a bear of a man too, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm, that terminology mm-hmm, bear mm-hmm. is well known, you know, in, in that. Yes, you're right. Yeah, lifestyle. you're right. And they yep, and yep. would that make Walter the them? I suppose in that relationship. But then he also mm-hmm. depicts Walter as like like a zombie. Like he demonizes Walter in a way. Yeah, completely. <laughs> so, I mean, completely. yeah, he does so kind of give a, a positive view of homosexuality through the portrayal of Bismacher, but at the same time, well, I, he also... I didn't say that. I didn't say that.
0: Yeah. I, I just said that the sexual okay, ambivalence of the character, Ambi- I said the sexual ambivalence, ambivalence of the character yeah, okay. worked well, and I would like to see that. I don't necessarily think that some of these these representations are positive ones. I no. just thought that it was it was refreshing to have a sexually ambivalent character who was called out as such by his wife, called out as such by Bond. You know, the narration, I get that. I just thought that was, that would have been really neat if more had been spent on that instead of Cedar Lighter, who just turned out to be a piece of bait, you know, like, just a... a, Forecast, it
1: almost forecasts like uh, Silva in Skyfall in a way too.
0: Bingo, yeah, it did, totally, yep. Totally, and I like that, I think think that's cool.
1: I also kind of like... Even though that, you know, had that sexual ambivalence with Bismacher, Mm -hmm. I did like how he has this avuncular feeling about him. You know, he was like, was like John Huston in Chinatown. Like there was like that. (laughs) Yes. You know (laughs) what I mean? Yeah. That's sickness too. Or like an older James Coburn type. That's in that respect.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yep. That's a good comparison. So what did you do? What did you score the allies and adversaries? I went three and a half, but...
1: I, I went three and at? a half because I want to you talk did? a bit. Okay, because cute, I was. I, I found was disappointing a bit because I found she was degraded to a love interest. Like they only focus. I like how she has agency. Yes, I do appreciate that about her character. But I think I kind of wish there was more of a will they won't they, and they kind of just stretch that out and just have like a money penny sort of. Because obviously they're, they're they're converting the money penny relationship. But in, that's what I thought they were going to do. Um, oh.
0: Hmm. I didn't see it that way. I, th- I yeah. kind of saw it like Gardner spent a lot of the previous book developing her. And yeah. now she's just a girl that Bond enjoys being with. And she, Sylvia people terms, yeah. kind of, kind of, yeah, maybe yeah. more like that. But I, I feel like maybe. I-, I didn't read Anne Riley in this book and just think of her as a conquest. I thought of her as like, Not you know, a conquest, she has her own agenda too. She's very, she stands would have liked-
1: feet. I would have liked to see like them just not just in bed, but just a scene with them, you know, like laying out all the gadgets, talking about the operation and stuff like okay, that. I would have, fair I, enough. I, I would have preferred that. Like, show her professional side as well. Uh, maybe have her appear yeah, sure. in the story. Like, well, you she know,
0: could it, have so taken so, the place of Cedar Lighter in the briefing. She could have taken the place, you know. Like,
1: absolutely it could have been
0: any it could have been anybody yeah. sharing the any information about who this guy was or
1: they could have been in communication with her like girl in the chair now i know this is back in the 1980s so they don't have that sort of like guy in the chair aspect like mm. a lot of like yeah yeah you know like mission impossible even the modern bond films of, of you know someone at, behind the camera telling them what to do yes. right they, they don't have that but m is perfunctory. Uh, and the father and son nuance, to me, is is missing. I, I, and, you know, it was almost like M, M has no comment whatsoever mm. about Cedar Lighter being Bond's partner. Like, I would think he would no. find that utterly ridiculous, the M that we know. From of course what, the, he would. Been,
0: been, that, been, that's been, that's been, why like, I don't like, like, understand why, in all of his experience, he's he's decided to kind of enable this partnership. Yeah. It seems ridiculous that he's just had a, a moment of, I don't know, insanity. Or, like, he's yeah. lost all of his... All of his professional acumen in in enabling this one.
1: Speaking of professional acumen, then we have Felix Leiter mm. makes a surprising return. He's he we first see him. He's preserved in his Fleming inc- incarnation, a private detective, some gray hair, upgraded prosthesis. He takes out the Python. He he does, his, he does his badass rocket launcher thing, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course, there we'll get to the when we get to Cedar, we'll talk about the ending. Um, or we'll probably talk about the ending even before well, then. Yeah, uh,
0: when we get to the narrative, yeah. yeah.
1: Now, Nina Blofeld is a cool twist on the surface. She's a damsel in distress mm-hmm. in an abusive, deviant yep. relationship, according to Nina Bismacher anyway. According uh, to her, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that Bismacher is a cl- closeted homosexual and has a physical relationship with Walter Luxor. But I found that once she is revealed as Blofeld's daughter she's dispatched rather quickly and easily. I mean, he throws a chair at her and she falls out the window and then the python eats her. Like, it just seems like utterly just utterly ridiculous how that happens. It seems, it seems like an end boss at a video
0: game and you know exactly like the, the fire pit that they're going to fall into, you know? Yeah, and or kicking snake comes a up bobo
1: out of the plane and Double Dragon, you know how like when you're fighting <laughs> on the plane or the helicopter? <laughs> that's right. And then yeah. when the door opens and they get like sucked out, like that's what that reminded me of um <laughs> the reveal is exciting yeah. and part of me thought cedar was going to be revealed as blofeld's heir i thought that would have been a cool twist that she wasn't really cedar lighter yeah but she yeah. she was actually n- blofeld that's
0: right Th- that would have been that interesting cool. that i was hoping that something like that might have happened but no nah.
1: yeah but the d de- because all the time that she spends away from bond at parts like on at the ranch that very easily she could have just been like formulating the the future of the plan right and doing stuff. that's right yeah that would have totally. been really interesting uh, but I, again, though, we have, like, the demonization of homosexuality that's espoused through, yeah. like, Bismarck and Harrow. And then we have that physical scarring of Nina. So, like, that misbegressed yeah, thing. Yeah, like, yeah. a bit old-fashioned for this modern sense. Like, disfigurement equals e- evil. It's like making Richard III yes, evil. yeah, totally. Because totally. he's a hunchback. Sexual mm-hmm. designation and deformity equals bad guy. And that... I know. I, I'm with uh, you, man. That, it's yeah. boring, isn't
0: it? It's tropey. It's boring. Yeah. That... That deformity telegraphing like a monstrous figure, yeah. it, it's like there's clearly something evil about women with birthmarks and physical deformities. Like, are we are we in the fucking medieval witch burning days now where we just <laughs> uh, look t- at something? Seriously. And it, it is. It's disappointing that we haven't really yeah. risen beyond those puritanical kind of symbolisms. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't like that. I, did, uh, I didn't like it. Yeah. But and yeah, Mazard- what are you going to do?
1: And Mazrd was just a smooth-talking thug, nothing more. I mean, he was pretty ephemeral in the end. He was, he was yeah, just, yeah. Blah, yeah, whatever. I would say Elvis in Quantum of Solace has more personality than Mazrd did. <laughs> yeah, well, that's arguable. Although I did like the charisma that Mazard showed in his first sequence, and I thought that that was going to lead to a situation where Bond and Cedar would be like in a difficult situation right away. And but then it yeah, they, they got, got out of, of it really quick, really quickly. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah that was interesting. So overall, I found the allies disappointing, with the exception of lighter. But lighter then using his daughter to tease his friend's libido was kind of weird, to be honest. So we'll talk about this uh, later on because we have our own thoughts about it, as I gained from your summary. So we'll we'll get into mm-hmm. that. Um Nina Blofeld was well hidden and the reveal works, but ultimately comes to nothing. The nostalgia in regards to the allies and adversaries and how well Gardner made use of it. You know, playing with expectations, you know, that's cool. Overall, like three and a half, I think, is more than generous for the allies and adversaries of this story. Well,
0: I'll start us off with the narrative then. Uh, I don't have a lot to say on this front. Um, Although the adventure was greater in scope, I think in terms of narrative, I liked this less than license renewed. It Mm. feels like Gardner is reaching a little bit here. And preying on the goodwill and eagerness of Bond fans to want Spectre back, to want Lighter back. Oh, let's spin off. Let's get Lighter's character who might come back as well. The foodie moments in a story, the travelogue moments in the story, I feel are very forced here. Uh, Like, the best, the finest, the greatest, chicken pie, vodka, chili. Like, it's all just sort of described in those basic generic terms. Like... It's like Gardner is aware of the requirement to put in food and drink, but he doesn't really care about it. Like he researches stuff about oh, what might Texans eat? Chili. Boom. Let's put it in there. Chicken yeah. pie. Boom. Vodka martini instead of a mint julep. Boom. Like there's no charming details. There's no restaurant feel yeah. to the story. Like Gardner didn't you know, live the, the lifestyle.
1: The, the, yeah, of Ian Fleming. That's that is an excellent
0: like, point. You, you do yeah. have an excellent point there, and I think that that's something that I should be maybe more cognizant of, so I don't smash Gardner, because he didn't live the lifestyle, but that doesn't mean he can't research it and care about it and want to escape in it a little bit better than he does. I feel like we had more of that in the previous one. And those sort of, they're not Easter eggs, but those sort of features, those home comforts of the genre, of the Bond story, I feel like that's really missing here or it's done so quickly as to be ephemeral, to borrow a word that you... That you used a moment ago, it just it just sold very floppy to me, and without any investment, the book is well researched though. Like I'll give Gardner that much, Josh. I feel like the research is visible. He knows his gadgets, but and his the cards. visible. It's also visible. I think um, in the book's last five or six chapters, as they move into that third act, you know, with Norad and Cheyenne Mountain, yeah. uh, that whole the, the whole observation of the way. That infrastructure operates, I thought was really good. But I would have to agree with what you were saying about Kingsley Amos, that the book does lack some of that human warmth, because was it desolate? You said he used the word desolate. I'm, I'm desolate. not not—I'm not sure I would go... I'm not sure I'd go quite that far, but there is certainly less character writing in here than what Fleming or even Amos himself did with Colonel son. Like, there was a lot more on offer in terms of character writing. Like, Amos... Uh, Amos also said something, didn't you say, um, that like he doesn't think Gardner was interested in the material that he was writing, but instead just kind of slogging it
1: out? Something yeah, like that? Uh, right. So we talked about how like there's a lack of slightest human interest or warmth. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, yeah. Uh, Amos goes on to say that, but then to do anything like that, the writer must be genuinely interested in his material, right. quote yeah. unquote. Okay. That's it. And yeah. I feel yeah. that Amos and well, I think some there's other there. people familiar mm. with Fleming feel that John Gardner, it, you know, he was commissioned to do this and people wanted him to do it because of the sets of his other stories that he was the one to do it yeah. at the time. And that's who they hired. But to yeah. me, I guess, yeah. or to these writer to these, to these critics who are probably, who are very familiar with Bond, um, you know maybe they don't um you know they're not filling the he's not fulfilling the vision of bond that they have in mind they're sort of being fanboys themselves in in terms of how they review john gardner's books i'm curious what anthony boucher thought of the john gardner novels if he even read them <laughs> yeah but,
0: yeah yeah that would be that would be interesting we could probably finally someone's
1: got if... fleming right <laughs> <Well. laughs> <laughs> his final like fu to um Ian Fleming it, to Ian Fleming it would be, yeah. Um, I, I just I do
0: think that's an interesting comment though by Amos because there is obviously an awareness of of Lighter and Spectre and all of this, but I wonder if there's an interest in the material. He probably knew bringing Blofeld back would, as you suggest, would would please a lot of folks, so he did it. And, and he probably knew that bringing Lighter back and and a daughter into it, but there's no mention of Blofeld with the the daughter or Nina, the, the the daughter father relationship, not at all. Or what happened to that man? What happened to her upon learning of her father's death? Where did the revenge get born? You know, we we don't know. Like, was there a relationship with Irma Bunt? Did she see Irma Bunt as a stepmother? Like, we don't know anything. He doesn't go in and fill in any of the blanks that Fleming left open for writers to do. And I feel like that's an enormous waste for the narrative. Like I'm happy playing along as a fan of the bond stories, But if you decide to get into Blofeld territory, I think you've got a responsibility to the author to do stuff that fills in gaps, that satisfies not just the reader in a token way, but satisfies the continuation of that character's arc. Even if it is just backfilling, you know, garden space. I think that's important. Like, there's very little effort here on Gardner's part to do anything remotely like that. It's just spectre. It's just... Blofeld and Blofeld's daughter, Nina, and it's blah, you know,
1: evil and evil. It's not... With Purvis deep. and
0: Wade writing this, and...
1: I wonder, like... <laughs> <laughs> Because you I don't think know, about man. it, the book would at,
0: still be going through redraft if, if Purvis and Wade were writing
1: it. True, true, true. But let's think about <laughs> Spectre, for example, and how a lot of people are disappointed with <coughs> the reveal of Blofeld in that story. And I think you can look at it in yeah, terms of yeah. John Gardner. Like Barbara Broccoli and G. Wilson are in charge, obviously, right, on at the, at the top. But in terms of like writing mm-hmm. and in terms of getting audiences into it and the, and the Bond franchise, it's all about, you know, nostalgia, 100%. We've seen that yeah, now with yeah, the creation yeah. of cinematic yeah. universes and Bond is not is is just the same at, at this point so bringing Blofeld back I mean was probably an obvious decision to make but you know they could done something different like i there was a really really cool idea that uh, someone talked about was what if Monica Bellucci's character was like a female version of Blofeld and the whole Nana mm. Nina Blofeld situation in this story kind of reminded me of someone's lamentation about you know the um waste of Monica Bellucci in uh, Spectre right so
0: that that's a that's an interesting observation yeah yeah good one well look dude narrative for me the the story had some interesting parts like really liked the rancho bismacher stuff i thought that really popped i liked being there um but i thought the character writing was really poor outside Mm. of bismacher even walter luxor he was unconvincing like this fucking this shell of a human this husk this husky yeah. of a life is going to be like a fucking Shelby Mustang race car driver. No, it's not. He's not going yeah. to do that. Like, how does he have those sort of reflexes? How does reflexes, he have that sort of, the, to so
1: like change the gears and, and do those I know, right? and stuff. Like, like you got to be in good physical shape to do driving like that. You got to be excellent physical shape. You're right. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All those gears to change.
0: Nina's deformity, the Blofeld gaps, the specter gaps, Lighter pimping his daughter out at the end, passing it off as a serious offer like that—that that to me really ruins and sinks the narrative. I gave the narrative a pass mark because I found parts of it very fun, but I found a lot of it distasteful and yeah. uh, not not serviceable to the good work that Fleming or others have done. This, yeah, this is a, a narratively speaking, I found this is lower than License Renewed, but I'm looking forward to getting into your point with it. I went two and a half. I just passed this narrative because although I appreciate that the plot might be more interesting and more deserving, some of the things that sink it for me, I just can't get away from. So, yeah.
1: Of course, I understand that. So, I gave it a three. I was like a half point higher than you. I found the novel innovative in terms of how the plot is developed. And, you know, the reveals were executed pretty well. Uh I like I like the opening with the high airline hijackings it sets the proceedings up nicely and that was a, just a really interesting sequence I like the idea of the air traffic controller mm-hmm. being this cool. guy watching it and then hearing like and, then he, and he explains, and Gardner explains to us how these things work. Gardner is really good at showing how the, the procedural Minutii. aspect of yeah, the minutiae is. of that has he a is. Tom Clancy yes. kind of feel to it in terms of how he gets into detail. But that's it's not a good too point. Tom Clancy about it. You know what I mean? Because Tom oh, Clancy will right. describe to you how a nuclear bomb goes off it. in 10 pages. <laughs> that's right. He will describe right. how a nuclear bomb goes off from chain reaction to the mushroom cloud. Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah.
0: He destroys imagery. He doesn't convey it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Literally. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I thought the the hijackers thing was pretty cool. Gardner definitely knows his gadgets and he seems to write stories around them. Like I just think he decided, would it be cool if James Bond just threw knives most of the movie? So, or uh, sorry, the book. And so what he does is he just uh, makes Bond an expert knife thrower all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Even the back of the book says, with a new pair of sykes Farabane commando daggers and a new Hegler-Hot seventy handgun, like yeah. you can see all already- we're entering we are entering the era of the branded marketing though aren't we Yes like, we thing. are we are and 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 that's yeah. it right there right it's we're going into that and- era even as early as 1980 it's happening
0: Totally man and also yeah. buddy we got to accept the fact that Fleming's gone and to sell the bond books you need to market them differently it's it is Ian Fleming's character but this is a bond now with an unknown or a less tested writer so yes. we've got to promote the product right that's yeah. what's going to get people interested.
1: Yeah. So, in terms of marketing, that was good. Mm. We So, we got the Blofeld Spectre slash Spectre scene at the old plantation house on the bayou. Okay. With the whole python thing. Like, I don't know. Like, I just keep thinking of, yeah. like, that X-Files episode where the guy got eaten by the python. Um, what is it? It's Dehan DeVillette, season two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The woman who turns into the
0: python. Yeah. The witch. But-
1: it takes a long time for them to digest it. So, like, <laughs> it does. did they like? So did they, did they just stand there and watch the entire digestion of the man? Like to me, it would have probably taken a lot longer for them to di- to, to, to yeah, because so. it was like an
0: hour, right? They did it for yeah.
1: an hour. Yeah, that was like <laughs> pseudoscience or something like that. I, I don't well, know.
0: No, I think that was just to consume it. That was just to eat the the, the thing, not to digest.
1: Yeah, true, true, true. Um, oh, we talked about Anne Riley already. Um, yeah. Talk about Gardner building st- stories. I think it's funny that mm-hmm. Bond is dating Q because it's kind of like he's having an ongoing tryst with Q branch physically. You know, he yeah. th- that has some interesting psychological ramifications. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like what if Desmond? What if Desmond Llewellyn was like you know some like handsome cougar or something like that? You know, and uh, <laughs> a man eater. You know, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have some interesting visuals in my mind right now. Like uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Um New York encounter, Washington DC, elevator debacle were mere set pieces to get us to Amarillo. Gardner writes the suspense in these moments more than adequately, but I don't enjoy I did not enjoy the Bond Cedar dynamic, just as you did. Um mm-hmm. the Nina well, Wismacher.
0: There wasn't a dynamic.
1: No, like, there, I mean, just there wasn't was, a dynamic. It was a it was a Roger Moore's Bond and BB Dahl dynamic is what it was. Yeah, but
0: it wasn't even as kind of like bond never really raised his eyebrows he he, he just was like he was kind of looking at her like yeah under different circumstances i would try it on but no nah, i'm not going to try it on and it was just kind of never never ignited well, that's on a friendship that's level like never ignited yeah. well because uh, I, I
1: think he didn't want to make that friendship connection you know what i mean he was doing his best to avoid it right that's the whole thing like, okay
0: um, all right well
1: yeah, so then we got the Nina Bismarck Bond dynamic. That was a good twist because it removed Bond from those prospects into entirely different one that pays off in the end. Uh, the mm-hmm. ranch sequences are typical Fleming pretty death traps, including the end of the second yeah. act when Bond's finally captured and then brainwashed. Yeah. And that to me, when yeah. he transitioned from like the second act on the, the, all the ranch stuff and transitioning mm-hmm. to Cheyenne Mountain, that I found very rushed. And it kind of was like what what's happening? Yeah. Like like. Yeah. The, I, like, I, and the, the writing justifies it and they kind of, and he writes it in, in a way where it makes sense and it all connected for me. I'm like, oh, okay. That was kind of cool. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you ever, <laughs> the Cheyenne Mountain sequences were entertaining mostly because, like, I think when I was during the pandemic, one of the shows that I ended up watching because you know the pandemic, you know nothing much to do mm-hmm. was stargate s g one, and the majority <laughs> of that show is set at Cheyenne Mountain, so That's I kind right. thinking like yeah. is James Bond going to come through the Stargate or something with Richard That's Dean right. Anderson? <laughs> That's what I was hoping for, but it never happened, or maybe Blofeld plans to use the Stargate to, like, transport, you know, take over another uh, world dear. or something. Oh, man, we're going yeah. into places here, but I just thought that was fun. Yeah, Unfortunately, right. every planet looks like Vancouver, so... There's um, <laughs> a reason for that. Yeah, right. there is a reason. But, you know, just before
0: before you move on, before you move on from that, didn't you think, like, or, or maybe you don't, but the risk that Spectre takes in setting Bond up and then luring him to become part of this trap, that has gaping gaping plug holes for me like even if even if the drugging works right okay the drugging works both on him and on the norad officers it right. depends upon a lot of other variables working perfectly like it is predictably foiled by bond and company as soon as he regains that consciousness that consciousness you know that that's sort of awareness yeah without much difficulty at all it just kind of evaporates all of that chat like that Walter Luxor gives, that four-minute speech on interballistic missiles and the Space Wolves and everything. It's all just like yeah. up in a puff of smoke. There's no contingency plan. It's just yeah, there, ah, run away, run
1: no, away. Like, there's no reason to have the conference except for – because we know that Nina showed Bond the tunnel. So, therefore, Bond knows yes, how to get yep. to the conference center. So, she assumed that Bond would go to the conference center and see the plan for yep, the vector. Yep. So, they had to put on a show, obviously – to uh, to convince Bond of that, right? So, but yeah, I mean, they could have yeah. easily have captured him before then and drugged him and did the hypnosis. So, definitely. And what is the point of the attack of, of those ants in you know the ant attack in yeah yeah in in uh, Cedar's cabin where they trying just to kill Cedar off and, or something and that was it and they just wanted to take care of Bond after that. Like I'm curious. Well, no, to see because what they had
0: swapped. They had swapped. Right. Cabin, so, Bond... so why
1: try to? So in that case, then yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's right. So. In that case, why the would they? What's the point of doing that if they plan to bring him into his plan? Like <laughs> exactly, it doesn't make yeah. any sense. So lo- lo- logically, there's a lot of holes there, you know, in, in, in that respect. And the Cheyenne Mountain scene also know. evoked so much Goldfinger imagery for me too, like just like, like yeah, taking over yeah, Fort Knox. Yeah. Like there was and even the point of like the villain or or Bond dressing up as like a general and going in there and giving orders, and the, totally. the lack security that they had there and and whatnot. In the end, I like how it was sort of like a desperate measure of Nina to gain full power, as much as much power as possible in her new position as the new head specter, just because, you know, they needed it. They needed those ballistic missile information and the satellite information, right? So yeah. um, the, the, the space wolves, so to speak, maybe they were trying to avoid Star Wars because that I think was the official term of those satellites with yes. like weaponry. Yeah. And I guess maybe for copyright purposes, they couldn't use that the Star Wars plan yet. But uh, yeah,
0: maybe. Yeah. Okay. um so what was your narrative mark man
1: i gave it a three as i as i mentioned i think i mentioned at the beginning oh, if sorry, i didn't you did. yeah right, okay it's
0: a three right okay
1: you know a man about the world feel that fleming conveyed i'm missing that it comes off very airport read at times as one review that i read said and mm-hmm. you know the twist at the end with nina being blofeld's daughter is exciting but it's shortly lived it's a good yarn with some surprising twists but it's very shallow um, and, ho- and emotionally yeah. hollow
0: right okay so, Yeah, I agree. Uh, Let's move on to girls, just in the spirit of brevity here.
1: The particular Bond girl of this story is Cedar Lighter. And I didn't talk about the climax of the story and the denouement of the story in the investigation, sorry, in the narrative part of our review, because I wanted to save it for...
0: Yeah, for us.
1: ...this... Yeah, I want to save it for this category because, so that we can get in into discussion about our feelings towards that particular ending. So she's a requisite Bond girl. In her defense, as I said, she wasn't overly hysterical, but she was just there. And the Gone with the Wind references are really peculiar and dates it. Like, I don't think many viewers pick up the James <laughs> John Gardner novel are going to know what Tara was. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it, it seems like John Gardner just didn't couldn't think of a pop culture reference at the time, like or something of, of that period. You know, if he went ba- all the way back to *Gone with the Wind*, but I guess he assumed that the, a lot of the Fleming readers from before probably have seen *Gone with the Wind* because, I mean, it was still playing in theaters even though even up to that point too. Like they would still show old movies like that in theaters all the time. Yeah. So people were probably very familiar with that story, especially in the United States, or at least the know?
0: house. You know, the big the big house. But it's uh, least- a bit of a mixed metaphor because it's it's a Texan location. And it's not yeah. exactly a Southern, you know? Like, no, because
1: uh, it was in uh, Georgia, was, wasn't was it? It was like, yeah, like Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, she's more of a comic relief character than anything. Because as I said, it's like that BB doll premise where you're just laughing at the uncomfortability of Bond. In the, in, in the in Four Eyes Only, you're laughing and respecting the uncomfortable feelings that Bond has in that situation. Whereas in this here, he's suppressing his own... I guess his own desires and his own urges, right? So it's a little different in that in that way. Bond does all the thinking uh, for her, and we but though we 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 do get some catty remarks and some tension created by the fact that we don't have that you know Bond, you know we don't want Bond to sleep with his best friend's daughter, and then you get some fun side eyeing about Nia, I suppose, a catty mm-hmm. talk again. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just there for A, nostalgia, and B, the end zinger for Felix Leiter's big joke. And so going from your summary, uh, this is what we can get into, but my rating okay. before we do that is a three for girls. Okay. Well, I went because for a two I, I, for girls. Because I, I, also conf- I also incorporate Nina Bismacher in there, who is a little more mm-hmm. interesting than than her. So that's the only reason why right. it gets a three.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I, I gave it a failing grade. I'm afraid. I I did think long and hard about it before scoring it at two, because failing a Bond story on its female characters is a big deal, because its female characters are so important to the formula. But Mm -hmm. although I like the twist of having a Bond girl switched up as a perpetrator, I give the perpetrator marks, or the adversary marks, for Mm -hmm. Nina. So I didn't consider her as a Bond girl, because, you know, ultimately... But I could have equally. So I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not dismissing your score at all. If you want to put her in girls, Bond does sleep with her. Bond does make out with her. Bond does fancy her. So there's always the two
1: Bond girls, right? There's like the Madonna Virgin. Yeah, that's right. right. The the Madonna Horror Dynamic, right? You have your um, Domino and then you also have your Fiona Volpe, right? You have your Natalia and your Zinnia on a top. So
0: yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it then, buddy, Um, because you're intimating. That you didn't see the ending as I did, and perhaps many uh, listeners would would like your feeling of it. But just just as a, a reminder, I didn't like it. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was really sick. Actually, the end of this book, um, even if I didn't, I didn't joke, like it either. Even preferred. if, yeah, of course, of course. But e- different reasons. Maybe you have, or maybe you see it differently than I do. But the possessiveness of the expression, you know, a gift, and the yeah. idea of whatever you want her to be. Um, That I find that tough to interpret along a spectrum, you know, of of possible connotation. To me, it is pretty straightforward that this is one man offering his buddy, oh, she's grown up now, she's grown up now, Bond, Uh, whatever she wants is okay with me. But uh, let's just not phrase it that way. Let's not phrase it in a way that's like, hey, if she wants to sleep with you, I can't stop her. She's a grown woman. Okay, thank you, thank you. That's what I was looking for. But yes, instead, it's like gift. joke, joke, nod, nod. It's a gift for me. Yeah. Whatever you, whatever you want her to be, whatever yeah. you want her to be. Well, what about what she wants? Can't it? Can't it be that? Can't it be if she wants you, she can have you. No, it's still Bond that's got to be in control. Yeah,
1: like, yeah, yeah. Good yeah, God,
0: yeah. like, come on. Anyway, look, I've said my bit, my summary. I, I think it's a really sick point of the story. I hate the way it ends. You tell me the way you see it.
1: Well, no, I, I agree with you 100%, but the summary seems to indicate that he was actually, give, in a summary, you kind of intimate that, uh, maybe I guess I read it wrong or heard it wrong, is that you intimate that he was offering his daughter for that purpose and gave was giving her permission to do so. I thought, because it says here that he's in his car laughing, and and Mm -hmm. Bond is visualizing him in his car laughing, you know what I mean? Like, that's explicitly written on the page, is that Felix Leiter is, like, having a good laugh over it, because he, in in a way, like, he's creepily cock-teasing his friend with his daughter. But he knows that Bond is not gonna do anything because they're both stubborn as mules, as sort of the as the text says. So Bond is gonna be his stubborn self and resistor. Cedar is gonna pursue okay. him, uh-huh. and it's gonna be a platonic time away anyways. So it's gonna be a pain in the ass for Bond, that whole situation. He'll be like quote unquote blue balled, I suppose, through that whole okay. circumstance right. circumstance, right? it's a bad joke it's a sick joke but i don't think (laughs) he's giving permission he's giving permission for her to do for him to to bond to do that i just think he knows that bond won't do it and he's just laughing at him in his own way between like between guys but to do that about your own daughter though like that that's something that you know i can understand how guys were back then and the male mentality of that time and even today but uh, the thing is is that like you got to separate your daughter from the locker room talk, you know what I mean? Like otherwise we're like in Donald well, Trump territory. Well, if you territory. don't, what what Yeah, yes, exactly. Completely. Like, like we're like in Donald Trump territory, you know, we're like I'm talking about Ivana, you know, like we're in that we're in that situation here. It's kind of weird. And yeah. maybe that's just an attitude but, that existed back then where but it's I don't know, like maybe it didn't in more puritanical circles. I don't really know much about it because I never really experienced that in my in my own lifetime, so I mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe this like cuz none of their bad reviews Mention this at all? Like none of no, them really right. pick yeah. pick this up. They don't. Like I'm so, I'm curious to see looking for more modern reviews on what they thought of of this. What end of, this, of it, of yeah. this And end it, is
0: this us just looking at it through a different lens, a forty years later lens? Me too. Yeah. You know, we've had a, we've had a lot of progress on the sexual front.
1: The trope of the protective father figure, especially one like Felix, I can see Felix later possibly being. I mean, I know he trusts James and he understands them and he, maybe he respects his daughter's feelings towards her. But the gift thing is just, yeah, that was just really, really. I don't know. That 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 was the thing I think that derails that whole passage.
0: Well, y- y- you suggested that Bond was imagining, you know, Felix laughing, but the narration tells us in his cab heading for the airport. Okay, that's Felix right. Felix Lighter chuckled to himself. So, I mean, that's not Bond's imagination. That's the narrative no. point. Like Felix is having that moment of laughter. But he's but is he, is he laughing? you think he's laughing because he knows his daughter is stubborn? Listen, maybe he does, but the narrative the narrative doesn't really build her as this stubborn mule type character. We don't get to know her that fucking well. But
1: she but she's been pursued about she's 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 pursuant about Bond throughout the novel, so she's mm-hmm. very headstrong mm-hmm. about that. And Bond resisting mm-hmm. her all the time, going with Nina. Yeah, okay now. All right. But we don't know that they had a conversation between them about what happened. They have no idea, right? But maybe mm-hmm. he knew or maybe she mentioned to him that she likes Bond or or, she, or he in their whatever period between, you know, the... Getting the, the gift,
0: the, yeah, and killing the snakes. Yeah, okay.
1: And killing killing the snakes in between then. Mm-hmm. What, what, what conversations went on for him to see that nuance? You know what I mean? So that's well, not... We should have had the them novel. too,
0: John Gardner. We should have had them too because... That nuance would, you would have probably good. been
1: better... Yeah, exactly. That was just really weird, yeah. but yeah.
0: Well, let's move on, finish up our chat with locations and equipment. Um, locations for me was definitely a passing mark. I went three and a half. Every time Bond goes to USA, there's always something that just doesn't quite feel right. And for me, New York City was was just like, it was an oversight big time here. It was just a stop along the way. Amarillo was cool, but really Rancho Bismarck itself, the ranch and its entire locale, including its house, racetrack, conference center. This is cool. I'm enjoying being here. I like what Gardner's done in bringing it to shape, the monorail and all that stuff. It is good fun, and it's interesting for a specter layer as such. Mm-hmm. The vibes, as we've already said, really similar to Diamonds Are Forever and the Las Vegas Spang Brothers stuff with the, the locomotive being the monorail, I guess, and mm-hmm. the gangsters with the hoods and the the, the desert setting of Nevada versus Texas. Louisiana is cool as well, Josh. But here we're only at the start and the end. We're only book ended the experience. Crichton, the deaf mute, is kind of interesting, but like, what happens to him at the end of this story? Like, what the hell happens to him? He just seemed like an innocent kind of yeah. goon that worked for them. Like, this
1: exactly. I mean, Garter's you know like spin off by, by, by putting someone in there, but he doesn't he doesn't mm-hmm. use it. You know, he just doesn't He doesn't
0: use anything. it. Yeah. Travelling the uh, the 857 miles from, uh, you know, east-southeast from Colorado down to New Orleans could be done in 13 hours by a car. But flying a helicopter, man, I know I said it in my summary. I just don't understand where the time is condensed in this book. Like, you mentioned it yourself, too, with that um, getting to Cheyenne Mountains seems really condensed. And we just assume Bond's been drugged. We're told, briefly, 48 hours or something drugging. Okay, right now I'm here in a different place. You know what I mean? A lot of helicopters going great distances in this book.
1: Yeah, like they have like uh, anyway. I don't know. I don't know. Like uh, rocket fuel or something attached to them, or so, who knows? Nitro, <laughs> nitro, nitro. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, like Gardner. He tells us where we are going, where we are, but it's window dressing. It, it's to get us from one plot point to the next. It's an it's to fill off a. It's to, it's to basically check off the Bond trope quota. You know, does Mm -hmm, something right on the list and, oh, we got our locales here. We'll do an airplane cabin, a New York City high-rise, a DC motel, an isolated Mm -hmm. compound in the expanse of Texas with a monorail giving Westworld vibes. Okay, that's Mm -hmm, kind of cool. But then you have, you know, a lot of, again, rooms 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 similar to what we had like in license renewed we're not doing a lot of globe hopping we don't have the travelogue feel to things we're going to like very generic american locations and mm-hmm. it seems like mm-hmm. you know that he's writing more for like an american audience and a british audience sometimes because he knows that bond is really popular in the united states by this point true so yeah perhaps he knows who he's writing to right. um and also fleming for... never
0: really did that flex did he
1: no not really uh Cheyenne Mountain, the buyers of Louisiana, that's not bad either, but it's like the coloring book version of Fleming's descriptions of such profoundly right. American locations yeah. or any location. Yeah. Gardner is, is that. He's the one that said, he's the coloring book where they even have like the numbers on what you color there. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, this is those, green. Those, this is this blue. Is, exactly. Yeah.
0: It's, like, it's like the rescuers. I got a rescuers vibe from this when I started okay. watching it, you know? Like, you know, the rescuers with, with where they have that uh, boat house. Yeah. Or sorry, the, the old boat, and that's where the baddies hang out. I did get a kind of rescuer's vibe of the crocodiles. don't know why. Maybe because that's what my daughter's been watching recently. I don't know. <laughs>
1: that's good. So, yeah, my, I gave locations a, a three. Uh, I wasn't re- okay. overly impressed or, yeah, fair or, enough. Or, or wowed. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I was a little bit above that. What was your score for girls again? Sorry, buddy. Three.
0: Three as well. Right. now, Three you typically- only,
1: because, only because of Nina Bismacher. Yeah.
0: Right. You typically are an equipment guy. You really like and are often high-scoring for the gadgets. I know you liked that a lot in License Renewed. You really did like that. So I, I was I was pleased with the equipment here. The Silver Beast Saab 900 Turbo marks a return. Hidden compartments, night vision lamps, hidden weaponry, fire extinguishing system. I mean, a lot of that is put to use. The attache case with the throwing knives, yes. Heckler and Kosh VP70 gets a lot of time on the page. Also, yeah. so do the 44 used, Magnums yeah. that we see yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of the villains, giant pythons, ice cream, drugs, the Shelby five hundred, or sorry, the Shelby GT five hundred, or so the three hundred and fifty. I can't remember one of the one of the Mustangs, which is outfitted with incendiary equipment. The the equipment works in this story. I went three and a half because it was nothing what that blew I? my socks off. Oh, did you? Oh, I thought you I would did. have gone higher for that.
1: No, I went okay. three and a half. It was it was it, it was okay. adequate. Like cool, I, I guess cool. I um I found the writing of like the the like the uh of, of the race, I thought that was really well described in terms of how those those kind of races go and the gears that are shifted and how the turns are described and how what and the mm-hmm. strategy on, on yeah that racing. was a good scene that was a good that scene, was really yeah. well done and you could tell Gardner enjoys mm-hmm. writing those passages because he's really into the technical aspects of those things and he does that really well he's a very good technical writer John Gardner he's also a very good technical writer that is simplistic as I said mm-hmm. he's not the Tom Clancy type who goes into overly detail because he has that knowledge. Gardner, I think, has that knowledge based on his own career and his, you know, and his. That's but right. at the same yeah. time, he's able to convey it on the page to make it up, uh, you know, to make it digestible for the average reader. Mm-hmm. And, he, and and that's really good, sure. his, his technical knowledge. But I think that's also sort of the downside of his writing is that it creates this um, thing where, yeah, he does the technical stuff really well and he's concise about it, but he's also doing that with the character and, and other aspects of the writing. That stuff that you need, I think, a little more elaboration with. So yeah, sure. that's what's missing in his writing, in my opinion, is his descriptions, mm, his, di- his dialogue, and his um, and his character writing. Um, but yeah, but like when it comes to like set- setting up a plot from from you know a point to you know from from the beginning to the end, uh, a to z, he does that really well. He does technical. Uh, descriptions very well and action sequences he makes them you know like v- visceral enough for you to feel the suspense so props to him in that respect and that goes into the writing of the equipment um i like the briefcase kind of a for much with love mm-hmm. uh callback yeah with with more knives the hypno drug by the villains the python that was very Bondish. uh then we have the sab 900 very 80s Bondish. seven it was very yeah.
0: roger moore Bondish
1: yeah more so than say Well, and
0: i guess daniel i guess daniel craig does fight a komodo dragon but
1: he doesn't really fight it per se though no he escapes um, it <laughs> he escapes it yeah but again again bond he kind utilizes of it. Gets, it utilizes it to his advantage yeah um the throwing knives all of a sudden that took me back a bit but it still kind of worked but it just didn't feel like bond to me i don't know it was just kind i wonder of did
0: octopussy borrow that do you think the throwing knives from the next film mm. mishka and grishka but- and all that
1: maybe it's very possible i know like the some mm-hmm. of the jar gardner plot details do get picked up Oh, they do me. get in yeah for sure yeah. they do get in there yeah. they definitely do get in there um and i like i like i like gardner's consistency though like he's creating his own little bond universe here so you know the loyalty to the sab 900 i embrace that car uh, he's got <laughs> yeah, me down with yeah. it pretty much i like yeah, the i too. like the uh the i like the the um the the kruger magnum uh, sorry, the Ruger Magnum, like in the, Ruger Blackhawk, yeah. yeah, the Ruger Blackhawk Magnum in that little compartment for use when he needs mm-hmm. to. Describes how he uses it. it Could take out an engine. So, like, he crea- he he creates the strategy and the details of Bond really well. Like that part of the spy craft. I want him to be more into the more cerebral part of the spy craft. That's what I think is missing from his novels, yeah. and also the yeah. the, the,
0: the character the, writing, the, 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 character. the
1: psychological and character writing. So, you know, four is also very good mark for equipment, but. I'm just feeling three and a half this time. I I don't know. I just... Well, look, okay.
0: Here's what I'll say in support of Gardner. I'm enjoying doing these books. I'm enjoying reading them. They're still fun stories. Yeah, they got problems for sure. Fleming's books weren't perfect either. But here's what I will say, okay? You got Goldfinger. You got The Spy Who Loved Me. You've got World Is Not Enough. And you've got Skyfall. These are the third films of each of the Bonds that did more than one. Mm -hmm. We are about to encounter our third Gardner story. Now, Goldfinger, The World Is Not Enough, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Skyfall are all great stories. The Bond is comfortable in the shoes by the time that comes along. Maybe Gardner is going to get real comfortable in getting onto this. Moonraker was Fleming's third novel. Many think it's his best, you know? Maybe this is where Gardner finds his best, too. Next time we go down the literary gun barrel, we will look at Icebreaker. So we'll see. Maybe Gardner gets more into the character of Bond, because we have been missing a little of that character writing, and some of these things he's glossing over as tropes. Maybe he invests a bit more time in the food, the locations. Let's see what happens next. Mm -hmm. But this has been a good chat, buddy. You're a 16 out of 25 total for this book. Does that feel right for you?
1: Yeah, I I think that's fair. It's a, it's a pass. And I'm at, it's I'm like, at it's
0: 15. Yeah, it's a pass. Yeah. I'm a, it's definitely a pass. It's a comfortable pass. And I'm at yeah. 15 out of 25, which is also a pass. But yeah, there are some problems with this story. I don't know I'll be rereading it quickly. This won't be mm-hmm. one I pick up anytime soon. But I'm glad, I'm glad we've done it. Uh, it was our mission,
1: after all. And we
0: had to satisfy the mission.
1: Exactly. We had to uh, com- complete it with uh, finesse.
0: That's right. And and we'll be back, won't we, Josh, soon with uh, Jeff. We're going to get into his uh, 00 Origins episode here on Bomb by Numbers when he looks at Operation Mincemeat, Fleming's involvement in it. And I think we're also going to try to say a bit about the new film, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we're going to have a little bit of a convo about the film, but mostly about the details of the operation itself, which is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Ian Fleming was actually uh, part of the, uh, participated in this operation, uh, not to the full degree of like the main planners of it, of course, but it essentially allowed the Allies to invade Sicily, and it's uh, pretty brilliant. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. As for today's episode, let us know what you feel about uh, the controversial ending to for Special Services, if you have read, yes, read the please, novel. Yeah. Uh Is this something that was an attitude of the time, you know, for those who, you know, who are a little older at the time when this book was released, when me and Scott were, you know, just on all fours. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, What was your impression of For Special Services? Let us know about that, too. Yeah. And I think maybe, Josh, just to end off, I'll
0: read the afterword from this book because there is some fact associated with the title of this book. Uh, This is written by John Del Fatore at the University of Delaware. In 1941, Fleming accompanied Admiral Godfrey to the United States for the purpose of establishing relations with the American Secret Service organizations. In New York, Fleming met Sir William Stevenson, the quiet Canadian, who became a lifelong friend. Stevenson allowed Fleming to take part in a clandestine operation against a Japanese cipher expert who had an office in Rockefeller Center. Fleming later embellished this story and used it in his first James Bond novel, Casino Royale. Stevenson also introduced Fleming to General William Donovan, who had just been appointed Coordinator of Information, a post which eventually evolved into the chairmanship of the Office of Strategic Services and then of the Central Intelligence Agency. At Donovan's request, Fleming wrote a lengthy memorandum describing the structure and functions of a Secret Service organization. This memorandum later became part of the charter of the OSS and thus of the CIA. In appreciation, Donovan presented Fleming with a 38 police police-positive Colt revolver inscribed for special services. So a neat little story there, which uh, connects to the book we read today, but also, I think, sets up nicely Fleming's actual military involvement, which Jeff will get into with Operation Mincemeat and our next episode here on Bond by Numbers. Well done. Take care, buddy. We'll see you soon, everyone. Thanks for listening.
1: Bye.